Friends, I don't know about you, but there is one particular person that really strikes fear throughout my whole body, really like hardly anyone else. The sound of his name just makes my whole body change. I can feel my whole body language shift when I think about him. If he were to walk through the doors right now, I think I would genuinely be quite worried, a little bit terrified. I really wouldn't be able to hide it, I don't think. The person I'm talking about is my school principal. Everything in the school was his. It was his domain. If he wanted you to miss recess for no reason, then he could. The whisper of his name by other students made me immediately change what I was doing and seek to hide somewhere. Think back to when you were at school. What was your principal like? How did you view your principal? Perhaps you're still at school now. Perhaps your principal is even in the room. No matter how kind they are and how good they were or are as a principal, there is some of that awe and that terror that we feel when they walk into a room, when we are in their presence or we hear someone warn you that they're just around the corner. I think that's because we understand their power and their authority. Because of that, everything changes. I think some of that fear, some of that reverence and that awe, it's just a little bit of what the psalmist is touching on here in our psalm today in Psalm 99. We're going to be looking at uh, that psalm together, just walking through that, and we're going to see how mighty and how holy God is, how he rules and he reigns in righteousness and how he deserves our praise for who he is. So really, as we walk through Psalm 99, you might want to turn there now. I think the main point of this whole song, and so the main point of our time together is, our God, he reigns, and he welcomes our worship. Our God, he reigns, and he welcomes our worship. We're just going to take this main point, and we're going to break it down, uh, in, and those are going to be our two points. So our first point, our God, he reigns, looking there at verses one to five, our God, he reigns. And then point number two, he welcomes our worship, looking at verses six to nine. So I'm just going to read those first uh, five verses for us as we look at that first point together. Our God, he reigns. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great name and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is I think there is great comfort found 
in this psalm for the people of God this morning. Both the the Israelites then and then uh, the Gentiles, us here today, those from the nations that have been welcomed and grafted in by God through his grace and adoption in Christ. What a comfort we have this morning. And really that's all because if you're a child of God here this morning, if you have trusted in Christ, this comfort is all because, the psalmist says, the Lord reigns. God, Yahweh, that's the Lord here, that's the one who they worship. He is the one who reigns. What does that mean? This means he's in control. This means that nothing happens outside of his perfect mercy and his righteous justice. It is a, a king that reigns. It is a king that has a throne. It is God who reigns. This is the, the fact that drives this psalm. This is to be a, a reminder and, and a comfort for his people, both then and here today. But what is this king, what does God reign over? There has to be a, a defined realm, a, a people and a place. I think Psalm 99 deals with both of those things here, the what and the who. And I think all of us really need reminding of this fact here today, both just for very different reasons. There are two camps here this morning, those who trust God and those who reject him. This is an important reminder for everyone here today. So here we learn about God's dominion. We learn about his subjects. So for his dominion, we know that he has a throne, verse 1 tells us. He is in Zion, verse 2 says, and that he has a people, verse 4. That he has a footstool, verse 5. He has a holy mountain, verse 9. Just going to consider those two things first. Look there at verse 1 with me. I think we're actually told there straight away that his dominion is, it says, the earth. All of these things, everything we know. His mountain, Zion, that he reigns over all the earth. So within this section, we also see that his subjects are the plural peoples, it says, of the earth. Often translated uh, as the nations there in verse 1. It says in verse 2 that he reigns over all the peoples. So we know that. The God of the Bible here is the God who reigns over the whole earth and over all peoples. His rule is total. His rule is all-encompassing. When we want to convey the, the depth and the weight of something, we now talk negatively about how awful something is or positively how awesome it is. Those two things really just mean the same thing, but somehow the word awful in modern times has become a negative. You can really just, if you break it down, you can hear its two parts, awe and full, full of awe. You can see what it really means. And I think here we're, we're meant to feel the weight and the power of these verses as they talk about who God is. The psalmist here, just over and over again, I think you're going to feel that this morning, just hammering this for us three times. 
God is declared as holy. Holy is he, verse 3. Holy is he, verse 5. For the Lord our God is holy, there in verse 9. It's just the beginning, the middle, and the end of this psalm. Just that constant drumbeat that we're meant to hear here today. For some of us, we really need our view of God changed. We truly need to understand how awful, how mighty, how holy God is. As people have for centuries now, as we live our lives before him, or as we saw yesterday with Caleb and Karen getting married before him in the sight of God, the one who rules, the one who reigns over all things. And for the Israelites, they were part of a theocracy where God was the one that was the ultimate authority. He was the judge. He was the king. He was the government. This psalm looks to a time where God's kingdom will be fully revealed to us. Where right now this is a place of faith. That kingdom one day will be a place of sight. As Christians, we we know, we trust the reality of this. We hold to the truth of this as we know this deeper. We know this in a more full way than the, the Israelites who read this psalm. And even the psalmist who wrote it. But God's kingdom has been established through Christ. We know that here today. Sadly, some of us have shrunk God down into some sort of fridge magnet. Or something on a tablecloth. Or something nice to hang on your, your kitchen wall. Or even just wear around your neck as just a token. We've shrunk God down. Maybe this is something that you do once a week. Maybe this is the only hour of the week that you open your Bible or that you consider who God is. Perhaps you come here, you sing the songs, and then you just disappear back into your secret life that no one here knows anything about. And you deliberately don't bring before God. Maybe your lives are completely unaffected day to day by who God is. I think we'll see that He should be, we should be truly full of awe, like nothing or no one else in this whole life, as we consider that he is the God of the universe, that he is holy. And so we need to have a proper view of who God is, who we are in relation to him, how small we are. I think with that, we then understand how truly Offensive our sin is before him. Let me ask you, do you take your sin seriously? Do you even understand the full weight of your sin before a holy God? Or do you just dismiss it? Do you just dismiss your sin? Look there at verse 1, it continues... And tells us some of how we are to respond to God. Those that know him. And then also those that don't. God is mighty. He is holy. This is why we see here that the people should tremble and the earth should quake. Now in our 
household, in our home, uh, I can be just a little bit sensitive about the kids, I've got three children, about our kids breaking stuff or damaging things, expensive things, you know, like the TV or a laptop or how they treat the car. But the kids, they don't know, they don't fully understand the true value of these things. They're careless because they don't understand the seriousness of the situation. Friends, I think many of us are the same with our sin. As our view, this is what I want us to see this morning, as our view of God grows, as week by week we we deeper grasp and understand who He is, we just see a, a glimpse into our human understanding of who He truly is, then we should shudder, we should tremble before our great God. God is good and gracious. He is a good and gracious king. We must understand that. Far more gracious than I am to my children. But he is also the Lord God Almighty. He's also the creator of the heavens and earth, a holy and awesome God. And so your sin against him is deeply serious. For we receive God's grace, we must understand God's holiness. The author carries on for us here describing God as sat, it says, enthroned upon the cherubim. Sounds strange. Sounds a little bit different. Something you maybe have not thought about before. At this point in Israelite history, God has chosen to reveal his presence to his people in just a couple of different ways. We see they're both mentioned here in this psalm. The first of them is through something called the Ark of the Covenant. It's a symbol of his presence in their midst. So when in the, the desert or while moving for years and years, we see this holy and amazing container. That's uh, what the Ark means. Uh, something that has the law of God inside that he has revealed and is carried by a group of priests. It does not limit her, who God is in any way, but it's how he chose to have his people commune with him. Well, on top of uh, that box, on top of the ark, were two cherubim statues, two heavenly beings there. And between them is what is known as the mercy seat. Well, between these two cherubim, above them uh, in that space, this is where God's glory cloud appeared in Exodus 25 and uh, to Moses and in various other places above that mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant. So when we're talking about God here, to say that he sits upon the cherubim is to say is, and to speak of his revelation, how he is revealing himself to his people and to the whole world. As the Israelites as they consider and as they hear this psalm, there's an amazing picture being painted for them and for us this morning of this holy and awful God on the one hand. And then just an amazing reminder that he has revealed himself to his people. This people that live in the desert. That he has promised this holy God who sits between the cherubim has revealed himself to a people. Friends, God, he is a holy God. But he is wonderfully, 
graciously a personal God to his people. If you're a Christian here today, then Jesus has given us this same promise in John 14. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He carries on, if anyone loves me and he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Friends, God is a holy yet personal God who is with his people. As we continue to look at the psalm, I think there's something really wonderful about how this whole psalm is structured. As we look at it, as with all the psalms, these are just songs, uh, records of Israelite worship. They help the Israelites as God's people approach him and praise his name. Look at verses 2 to 5, and I want us to see the kind of the call and response aspect uh, to their worship here in verses 2 and 3, and then in verses 4 and 5. So both times we have a declaration of who God is, and then a response from his people. So that declaration in verses 2 and verses 4, we see, The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the people. Another declaration, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice. And followed by those responses in 3 and 5. Let them praise your name. Holy is he. Another response, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. So declaration of how great God is. And then response, holy is he. So what about Zion, we see Zion mentioned there. We know Zion is a place. We know that it's a place of worship uh, near Jerusalem. And so I do think that it is referring to that place. But there's also more going on here. Zion is where David took the Ark of the Covenant. But it's also the name given to the Hebrew people. They are Zion. As we walk through the Bible, we also see, and especially in the New Testament, Zion used and that name and language picked up on. Hebrews 12, 22 refers to Zion when talking about God's everlasting kingdom. Author of Hebrews writes, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. Zion, that is God's kingdom, now extends across the whole earth. So as we read that the Lord is great in Zion, that is because we know he is a personal and present God. In his generosity, in his grace, he is with his people in Zion. He desires to be with them and he desires to bless them with his presence. The lasting comfort for God's people is that in his perfection the fact that he is holy does not stop his presence with them and that the people's defilement does not lead to God's dismissal their defilement leads to his deliverance friends this is something only God can do on 
your own. This would not be possible. God had to keep his covenant himself. As we carry on through verse 2 and into verse 3, we see that God is over all the people. He is exalted that people should praise his great and awesome name. This word exalt is given to us twice there in verse 2 and again in verse 5. Now exalt just means to lift up. It means uh, physically to lift something up, but also figuratively to place above. In in order to, to do that, in order to exalt something, then you must submit yourself before it, to place yourself beneath the one being exalted. What we are seeing is not just that God is greater than all the peoples, which he is. He is greater than any person. He is greater than any king or sheikh. We also know that he is the only God, greater than any other idol or false god that people might serve or worship. He is the only God. And what we are seeing in these verses is him being over all peoples. That they are all his subjects. He is over them all, not as a leader among equals, but as the holy God, the Lord. Friends, this is what we must tell people. We must remind them of this fact. This is what the, the people of Ras al-Khaimah need to hear. That the God of the Bible is different to any false God or false prophet that anyone else might worship. That the only way to him is through Jesus Christ. And that the only response is what we see in verses 3 and 4. It is praise of his great and awesome name. We should long to hear the people of Ras al-Khaimah declare, Holy is he. As I hope you know that we have to share the gospel with people here. We need to get to know them, of course. We need to be kind to people. We But we also must open and explain the Bible to them. Not just asking them to uh, rapidly consider what it means for themselves, but to show them over time who God is, who Christ is, and how it all points to their sin, their need for a Savior before a holy God. And to walk through with them how the whole Bible centers on Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Friends, we must preach, we must teach, and we must share the gospel with, as our psalmist says here, all the peoples. We need to help people understand the truth of God being who we see in verse 4. Look there with me. The king mentioned there, he continues to be God. And in its foreshadowing we now know the true coming king is jesus christ that is jesus the incarnate god god made flesh jesus has no beginning and no end he is eternally god he is the king here in his strength we know that he loves justice and he treats all people with equity that is justice and his righteousness Both come from the same hands. Both of those things together. The psalmist here shows us how God is holy and awesome. That the all creative and consuming power at his disposal. That he 
is mighty in many, many ways. Friends, you only have to look to the news to see the horrors that dictators and despots pour out on their own people. How much more could God do if he wanted to? How much more powerful is the one who created and sustains all things but God? See that his justice is good and fair. God gave his people commandments. God gave them his law, the the law of God throughout the Old Testament, all pointing to how holy God is. All showing his people his perfect standard, a reminder of the people's sin, a reminder of their need for him. Friends, God's justice is good. It is right. It is pure. You see, sin, that's all the wrong things we think and we do. Sin must be punished. All people will die and those that reject and rebel against him will suffer and be, will be removed from his presence. We'll have for all time an endless torment as they deserve. Every sinner deserves that. When we consider who God is, we see that it is right, that it's necessary. There is no other choice. We all deserve the same thing. Friends, God is justice. God is mercy. God is love. Friend, all of this, God has shown and demonstrated to us perfectly through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. There is no better demonstration of who he is in his loving restraint, his mighty justice, his righteous anger towards sin, all being laser-focused on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as he hangs there on that tree at Calvary. It is there. Only there that we see the full weight of God's wrath, the full weight of this heavenly burden felt and seen for the whole world. As we conclude this first point, we see the reminder that God is holy. How his people are invited to approach him, to lift up praise. For the Israelites, the Ark of the Covenant was just what it, exactly what it says on the tin. It was a container of God's covenant with his people. It was the place of the cherubim where his people praise his name and, and his footstool as named in verse 5. But how was it? How was it that they could declare holy is he? He made it clear to Moses on Sinai that his people are to keep his commandments and he will keep his promises to them, that he will be with them. The people make mistakes and each year these were dealt with on the Day of Atonement. His justice, God's justice was fair then as it is now. His rule is the same. Now on that Day of Atonement, a priest would go through the various tents and slowly Approach, move quietly towards the ark after 
much prayer, much cleansing. We see blood would be sprinkled on that mercy seat, that gap between the cherubim. The hope was that enough had been done. The hope was that God would graciously accept this offering each year for blood had to be poured out. Blood, God had made clear, was the cost for the sin of man. The people of God needed cleansing. There had to be a payment. This was a serious and terrifying thing. Would it be enough? Would the priest even survive? Would the nation be clean once again for a short time? Friends, what we see through now, what we now know is the fulfillment and the completion of this whole system. All of that has passed away. God knew that these things would not last forever. The ark was temporary, pointing to a time when God's presence with his people would be unending. Hebrews 8 tells us about Jesus coming to complete the work of the priests, to enter in the holy place and provide one sacrifice once and for all. Of these former things we read in Hebrews 8, it says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Because as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. As this old system, this old covenant has passed away. And we now know and enjoy more than the Israelites did. These promises of a coming king, of a sacrifice once and for all, of God's kingdom being extended and his presence unending, they're all found in Christ. These things, everything we see here in this psalm, all points to a day that we now know. Jesus did leave perfection in heaven as a perfect lamb. He did lead a perfect life. He did give his life as a sacrifice and his blood was poured out for his people, for all those that trust in him. And friends, this had to happen for God is a holy and a just God. The terror for all of us now removed from death if you trust in him. This judgment day, Jesus has paid the price. A simple goat or another animal will not save. Friends, being kind and friendly will not save. Being generous or wealthy will not save. And the cost is too high for you to pay. It's only Jesus' blood that has made a way. There is no other way for us, for you to be reconciled with God. That is made right with him. It is only through the worshiping and praising the king. That king is Jesus Christ. Look down at verses 6 to 9 with me and we'll see with all of this in mind, how God's people are invited in. And that in our second point, 
He welcomes our worship there in verses 6 to 9. Let me read those for us. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. So what we're seeing in this second section is a reminder by the psalmist of two things. Of God's faithfulness and also of his faithful people. God's faithfulness and his faithful people. We're given here this list of faithful men and we're going to look at those. But then we see how God spoke to them. How he was with them and how they obeyed him. Were they perfect people? No, of course not. But God is gracious and just and his people are still invited to worship him. Our holy God loves and welcomes the people that he has called to be holy. If you're a Christian here this morning, then this is you. Due to who he is and how he has dealt with you, you are called, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are called to obey him and to worship him. We'll see that uh, how these men did what they did. You too, as part of this holy nation, you've been brought into this royal priesthood, you're now part of that, that you too are called to pray. We are called to follow God's word. You are called to lift up praise to him. Look there at verses 6 and 7 with me. Now really this list of men being held up is not a surprise. It's three of the greatest names in the Old Testament, real heroes of the faith. Aaron was called by God to be God's chosen priest in Numbers 17. And in Hebrews 5, we see how he is a, he's a type of Christ in a way that he was called by God to this particular role. Aaron's faith was evident. And we see Moses, the great leader and lawgiver of Israel. He was a man who received revelation from God in a burning bush. He led the Israelites out of Egypt. He crossed the parted Red Sea. He led the people of God in the wilderness for 40 years. And he was used by God to lead the people as God established his covenant. Moses clearly loved and trusted the Lord. With Samuel, we see is the one who is a judge and a priest and a prophet. It's through his ministry that we see the kingship of Israel established. Samuel anoints Saul and then David, seeing the, the line through to Jesus firmly established. It's through him that we see God is establishing his temple, his house, where his everlasting king will reign. With Samuel's faithfulness, was evident. And in Hebrews 11, we're told that his faith pleased God. And what is really fascinating is how these men, despite their differences and their various roles and functions, are here all referred to as God's priests. This is qualified for us. If you look there at verse 6, it says, in their lives and in their ministries, they were men that interceded for the people before God. 
To say that they called to the Lord means that they prayed. This means that they sought the Lord. They cried out to him. People of God here are being reminded, as we are this morning, of what it means to come before God, what it means to trust him and to worship him. It means that this holy and awesome God we've talked about, that we can speak to him, that we can call out to him. And not just that, but we see how verse 6 ends. Ends with those amazing words, and he answered them. I think it's very easy to wonder for just a minute, what would that look like today? What would it look like for to say, and he answered them? I think it looks a lot like the message I read at 4.58 on Thursday evening that said, 18 days of physiotherapy and JC is standing. That is what it looks like. Praise the Lord. God answers our prayer. This is what it looks like today for God to answer in the big and the small of our everyday lives. Friend, God answers your prayers in your morning devotional time. We should cry out to him before we eat our food. We should call out his name while we're doing the laundry. When you're feeling great or even when you've had a stroke. All of those occasions, we can cry out to his holy name. Friends, when we consider the heroes of the faith, it's helpful to look back at the Old Testament, but also it's helpful to look to the left and the right, to see the people sat next to you, those like J.C. and Monique. Friends, those who through every trial and every tribulation hold fast to our great God who know that he answers prayer those that call upon his name and those who do truly, as we've all seen, exalt the Lord our God. Verse 7 tells us, look at how God's people are called to be faithful. They had known his presence with them. Shown by the pillar of the cloud and heard his voice. They were people that had, it says, kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. These opening five books of the Bible, we see these two phrases used many times to refer to God's law that he has revealed to his people. Exodus 16 uses uh, this kind of language that we see of testimonies to refer to the tablets uh, with the Ten Commandments on. Again, this language, uh, these characters here would have been so well known uh, to the uh, Israelites hearing this psalm as this song was uh, sung in their congregation. So we know that God's testimonies and the statutes he gave them, that's referring to God's holy law. What is his law? It's a definition of of how God's people are to relate to him. It is the agreement he gives for what it means to be his people. hope you heard that. It is his definition, not ours. Law of God is his definition. It's a tiny glimpse at his holy standard. People here are clearly reminded of the privilege and the honor of what it means to be the people of God. It is to be a people that God has called to himself in his grace. 
in his grace means not because of them or anything wonderful about them or because they're particularly beautiful or anything like that. There are people that he wants a relationship with. He speaks to them. He makes a covenant with them. This is a serious and possibly scary thing. Maybe a little of what we saw yesterday at the wedding, making a covenant with someone is a serious thing. It should not be entered into lightly. This covenant is with the God of the universe. Well, Here the people of God are reminded that they are God's bride. That he has called us. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have been chosen by God. Friends, this is an amazing thing. This gathered people here today are a testimony to the faithfulness of God, how he has kept his promises and brought people in from the nations. This is something we praise God for. We here as the bride of Christ preparing one day for that wedding supper with him. It's when we'll see this great expectation fully realized. Now look there at verse 8 and we see again God's faithfulness and how none of these men were perfect. After returning down Mount Sinai in Exodus 32 and seeing the golden calf, we know that Moses turns to Aaron and says, you done messed up, eh, Aaron? What he actually says, I mean, I've got the actual quote here, Moses descends and says, what did this people do to you that you have brought them such a great sin upon them? Moses, what have you done? Or other examples, especially where he disobeyed God with Moses. Aaron was not perfect. He messed up. He got things wrong. Yet in his life, we see God's forgiveness. We also see God's justice for what happened. It's the same with Moses, a clearly gifted leader and God's chosen man for the job for many, many years. Yet he got things wrong. He was not perfect in Numbers 20 when the people needed water and God gave him clear instructions about what to do. Moses did what he thought was best, did not honor the Lord. For that we see God's holiness there in clear view. God himself speaks and says, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of Israel, then Moses, you're not going to see the promised land. To us, this sounds so harsh. Friends, here... Again, we see the holiness and the might of God, how his justice and his mercy are from the same hand. For Samuel, we know too well that the first king he anointed, Saul, was possibly not the most successful. You read in 1 Samuel 15 that God is so full of sorrow over Saul's sin that he had to remove him from the throne. And we have Samuel's response here recorded for all time. It says, Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. So, we have all these 
wrongdoings. And at the end of verse 8, we see that God is an avenger of their wrongdoings. Here again, we see that God's holiness means that there must be consequences for what his people have done. That means no promised land for Moses or an early death for Aaron. The removal of the chosen king for Samuel. For his people, it also means that their sins must be atoned for. That blood must be spilled. That a sacrifice must be made. In these men and through God's work, we see so many signposts here, all pointing forward to the one who would come, a future king. One who would know every word of the law and fulfill every letter, every jot and tittle. A coming king who is also a great high priest. One who has reigned and ruled for all time, yet humbled himself to come to earth as a man, knowing and trusting the will of God. Perfect king who knowingly laid down his life, for he understood the holiness of God and loves justice. A willing king who is mighty to save. Verse 9 is clear. Completes the drumbeat of this worship song for us. Holy is he. Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. There is only one God, friends, that deserves our praise. Come and worship him. Come and lift high the Lord our God. Friends, it is only Jesus that could hang on the cross at Golgotha so that you could worship in Zion. The king in his might, here his condescension complete, bearing a weight only he could carry, a price that only he could pay. It was on Calvary's tree where righteousness and justice meet.